Hey, Jesse here. Thanks for listening to Many Realms. In this episode, we are playing Bluebeard's Bride, which is a horror RPG with a specific focus on the oppression of women, and includes concepts like violence, abuse, and body horror. You can use the full list of content warnings and the episode transcript linked in the description to determine if you'd like to listen to this episode. Once upon a time, there lived a lord, whose palace was so splendid and so richly furnished that even the sultans could not be compared with it. He had dishes of gold and silver, sofas and chairs upholstered in the finest silk. The walls were adorned with every kind of curious antique. There was, however, something very odd about this lord. The color of his beard was a rich and shocking blue. His countenance was both distinct and unmistakable, and so he was never spoken of by his real title which was grand and noble, but instead he was simply referred to as Bluebeard. He was a fearsome man with deep-set eyes, and he was known for having an uneven temper. Even so, Bluebeard had been married many times. No one quite knew what had become of each one of his wives in turn, as there had never been a funeral at the place that anyone living could remember. They simply vanished, and when time passed, he would marry anew. One day, Bluebeard went hunting in the countryside near his estate. With the sun high, he came upon a dilapidated farmstead and wished to slake his thirst and rest. The farmers were eager to please the powerful lord and set their lovely young daughter scurrying to serve him tea and bread. Bluebeard was instantly smitten with her beauty. He decided right then that he would take her as his wife. For a week he entertained her amongst a cadre of other fine lords and ladies. No expense was spared. His wealth was dazzling in a way a cobra dazzles a mouse. After that single hedonistic week, Bluebeard came to call with a marriage proposal. Bluebeard scared the young woman, but she couldn't let her family languish in poverty. And besides, maybe his beard wasn't quite that blue. She accepted his proposal. In short order, they were married at the palace. Such a sight it was, a thousand lilies decorated the pagoda for the ceremony, delightful incense burned throughout the night. The young bride awoke the next morning in her bed alone, her marriage yet unconsummated. This caused her some amount of anxiety, yet also relief. She was escorted by a servant to the dining hall, and there she found Bluebeard breaking his fast. He greeted her cheerily and bade her eat. Bluebeard informed her that he had received urgent news and must leave at once on a journey of much importance and would likely be gone for many weeks. To console her, he kissed her affectionately and gave her the keys to every door in the house. He bade her to amuse herself in his absence. Here, he said, are the keys to your new home. The smallest key, my dear, is for the closet at the end of the great gallery. Open everything, go everywhere, save this one little room. I forbid you to use that key. The bride promised to faithfully obey his orders. She stood waving to him from the palace gates as his caravan of camels and horses kicked up a trail of dust as they departed. No sooner was he gone than she began to wonder what could possibly be hidden behind the forbidden door. Did he hide disturbing habits or unseemly desires? Was there some 
secret treasure known only to those of noble blood. Did he hide a mistress? Or was it something too terrible for her innocent mind to guess at? She distracted herself from the idea with an exploration of the palace. She inspected the galleries, each more magnificent and splendid than the last. She tried on exotic furs and rubbed herself in priceless oils. She visited the servants in the kitchen which caused quite a stir and luxuriated in the steamy marble baths. All the while, her curiosity was gnawing at her. Was not the palace now her domain? Did not her husband trust her with his secrets? She idled in her bedchambers, becoming lethargic and gloomy. The splendor of her surroundings took on a sour bent and she could take no pleasure in them. Finally, she could not resist the siren call of the forbidden door no longer. In the pitch of night, she took a single lamp and descended a back staircase to the gallery. Upon reaching the closet door, she paused, remembering her husband's command. She feared what might happen if she disobeyed, but the impulse of her curiosity was too strong to resist. With trembling hands, she fit the small key into the lock and opened the door. At first, with the weak lamplight, she could not see much. As her eyes adjusted, she realized what was in the room. The floor was covered in congealing blood, and the walls were lined with headless bodies, bluebeards, previous wives. A great scream tore itself from her throat, and she dropped the key. It was a few moments before she came back to herself. In a daze, she grabbed the key from the floor and rushed out the room. She locked it behind her and returned to her chambers. In the daylight of the following morning, it all seemed like a dream. When she examined the small key, she found a stain of blood upon it. She wiped it carefully, but the blood remained. Then she washed it and scoured it with sand, but to no avail. That very evening, Bluebeard came back from his journey, saying that he had received word on the road that the business had already been settled. His wife tried her hardest to appear happy at his early return, but on the inside she quailed. She waited with dread anticipation for him to ask for the return of his keys. He did so upon the next morning. He looked through the keys and saw that the littlest one was stained. How comes this blood upon the key? I do not know. I do not know, she faltered. But I do, mocked Bluebeard. You have done as I have forbidden. Well, now you will go in once again and take your place among the ladies you were so curious to see. The bride threw herself at her husband's feet and begged him to forgive her disobedience, but Bluebeard had a heart of flinty stone. Prepare for your death, he declared. No, please give me but a few minutes, she cried, so that I may pray. Bluebeard agreed and the bride rushed to the top of the nearest tower, hoping against hope that someone such as her father or mother may be approaching for a visit that she could give them a sign to make haste. Penance whipped silently in the sun, but nobody was coming. The bride wept bitterly. Given no choice, the bride descended. He led her towards the tiny, horrible room. Near its entrance, he bade her kneel on the rough flagstone. She obeyed, weeping, and without ceremony he chopped off her head and put her body in among the other wives. My name is Eli, I play the mother, and it's good to be here. Hi, my name is Jordan, I play the Animus, and it's good to be here. Hi, I'm Jory, I play the Witch, and it's good to be here. My name is Jesse, I'm the Groundskeeper, and I'm here to bring the fear. Welcome to Many Realms. 
Bluebeard's Bride is a game by Whitney Strix Beltran, Marissa Kelly, and Sarah Richardson. The players will take on the role of sisters, different aspects of the psyche of the titular bride as she explores, one by one, the strange and sorrowful rooms of her new home. And I want to start by asking you, in a line or two, to tell me about your sister. Uh, the mother is, I'd say, equal parts affectionate and cold. Um, she walks with authority and has um, that expert touch of knowing when to soothe and, and charm people, but also when to take it away so that they crave that affection. Tell me about the witch. I think the witch is protective and creative. She's very quick to put up a wall or a barrier, and she's a lot more interested in her own intellectual pursuits than what people around her are up to. Will you tell us about the Animus? The Animus is is direct, confrontational, knows what she wants, and doesn't have time for all of the social decorum that typically surrounds um, the spaces in which she now resides. Uh, the animus kind of cuts to the chase in as many situations as possible um, and is not willing to break things, be it physical or personal, in order to get what she wants. Indeed. These are the three sisters that will be taking control of the bride today. They might disagree on courses of action. They might loathe each other personally, but they have no choice but to rely upon one another, at least until one or more of them is shattered. Each of these sisters also had a hand in creating our bride. I would like to hear a little bit from each of you about the bride. You can talk about the wedding gift you gave to Bluebeard, or what you were worried you were leaving behind, but make sure you include a little bit of the physical description you were asked to add to our understanding of the bride. We'll start again with the mother. In terms of a physical description, the bride is rail-like. She's thin, she's flat everywhere, and weak-looking. Others see her as too tall, not dainty enough, with hips that don't seem like they're fit to be a mother. In terms of her past and her emotions, leaving behind her provincial life to become Bluebeard's bride, she really misses her freedom. Um, she first fell in love with him when he brushed her hair back in this way that was so gentle it made her feel safe for the first time. All right. What about the witch? What can you tell us about the bride? The bride has very long, dark, and coarse hair that takes to styles well. So she likes to keep it up in braids and barrettes and decorations. People around her kind of think that those choices might be gaudy, but she likes the intricacy and in the work of doing her hair. I said that what she's leaving behind is a garden that she's tented for many years, that she really put her heart and soul into, but she has the opportunity to have much more space and better soil and better seeds in this new home. So she sees potential there. Thank you, Witch. Animus, I ask to hear from you. Uh, I was asked to describe the bride's hands, to which I answered that they are coarse and calloused. Uh, when people 
hold her hand, they can tell that she's worked among the lower class, which is something that she may be conscious of. I think I'll talk about her disposition towards Bluebeard himself. Um, the question I was posed was, do you trust your generous husband, Bluebeard, or do you hold unkind suspicions? Why is that? To which I answered, I am not one to lower my guard on the pretense of marriage. I have seen poverty in my family at the hands of what at first seemed generous people until they grew bored with the season's change. Bluebeard could not have the notoriety he has without being dishonest. That isn't how this world is. Though, to be fair, he is a lot more decent than I ever would have expected him to be. And for uh, cute sake, um, the gift that um, uh, I presented Bluebeard before the wedding was an old pup by the name of Henley. Uh, I felt that Bluebeard needed a companion that was both too old and lazy to deceive him and perhaps was a bit too daft even if it desired to. He is distrusting and poor soul, and Henley is loyal to a fault. They make a great pair. Jesse, don't do anything to this dog. Please. No. Well, he's old. He's lived a big life. It may be unwise to tell me that anything in Bluebeard's manner may be cute. Now, we have heard about our bride. We have heard about our sisters. Each of you gave Bluebeard a gift on your wedding. And the gift he liked most was the gift of the witch, the feast she cooked for him, slaving in a hot kitchen. He admires your obedience and your loyalty, and he loves your wild, dark hair, and you are his favorite. That means that you begin with the ring. Put it on now. Aw, worrisome. (laughs) (laughs) You don't want to be the favorite? I don't think I do. (laughs) Well, attention can be both positive and negative, but for now, Bluebeard is nowhere to be found. You are standing, dear bride, in the front room of the manor. Perhaps there are windows outside, perhaps you can see a storm rolling in across the horizon. You are carrying a large ring of keys, each one incredibly unique, made of some strange material or a unique shape, an odd color, a bizarre design. Each one calls to you with a different voice. You move to a door, bride, and you select a key. Tell me about the key you select, which? It is a big, heavy, old, rusty brass key. A little bit too big for the chain. What design does the key bear on its head? There's a small bird hieroglyph looking thing inscribed on it you unlock the door when you push the door open you could swear you hear the sound of fluttering wings then you enter the darkened room and the door shuts behind you inside this room dear bride you see what looks like a sewing room long disused there are the shapes of dress forms and dummies draped in heavy white tarps dotting the room. There is a rack on one wall that glistens with shining rolls of thread and sharp silver scissors. Against the back wall, below a heavily curtained window, 
is a sewing table, the machine built in, a stool in front of it. It seems to beckon you. I go look at the sewing table. I don't touch it, though. Okay. I think that you are investigating a mysterious object. Yeah. What about this item is odd or uncanny? You lean down and you inspect the sewing machine in front of you. It's brass inlaid dials have all had the numbers worn away. It's impossible to see what the settings are. But when you crane down and look underneath the sewing machine, you can see that the needle hanging an inch above the surface of the table has a fat, heavy drop of bright red blood dangling from the tip. Not great. And why, what memories does this item hold? Are you willing to get close to the sewing machine? Sure. I still don't want to touch it. You sit down on the stool and you see that there are two drawers, one on the left and one on the right of the sewing table. You open the left drawer and you see a small, elegantly bound book of sewing patterns. At first, they seem to detail beautiful gowns, shapely dresses, nice, strongly corseted pieces. All of the women who are wearing the clothes in this book don't look like you. They look better than you. Their figures are full. Their curves are plentiful. You cannot see their collarbones or their ribs jutting out from beneath their flesh. And further back in the book, you find more patterns. You find instructions on how to let out clothing and how to let out women. How to peel back, fold, change the shape to a more pleasing silhouette. Is the handwriting in the book Bluebeards? No, it's not. And there are measurements jotted and notes that indicate that a woman was here, perhaps making a pattern for or of herself. All right, I will put the book away and there are clothes here, right? You haven't seen any uh, garments yet, only the dress forms that are hidden under cloths. I'll pull off a cloth and see what the dress form looks like. Okay. Under the cloth is not a dress form. It is a woman. She is standing stock still, and she gazes up at you with eyes the color of honey. Long, fresh-looking cuts along her arms and down her legs seep blood slowly onto the floor. In fact, rather than being dressed in resplendent garments, she is dressed in horrible rags. When she sees you lift up the cloth, she blinks even in the dim light of the sewing room, and she moves towards you. What do you do? Does she seem like she's going to hurt me? Her movements are unpredictable, and her face is slack and bears no emotion. It's hard to understand exactly what it is she wants. Listen to it. I take a step back, put something like a chair or this sewing table between us. Maybe make sure my body language is open. Maybe I'll say like, Hello? How long have you been here? Bride, you put some distance between yourself and this figure that is shambling towards you. With ungainly limbs, it knocks and grabs for support against the sewing table. You call out to it, and as it 
turns and raises its head to respond to you, you can see that its lips have been sewn shut, preventing it from speaking. It whimpers, and drool spits out from between the stitches on its lips. Behind you, around you, other forms underneath these broadcloths start shaking and shivering. I'll approach the form and take a pair of sewing scissors and trim the stitches between her lips. That is for sure caressing a horror. You can roll with blood. Three. Yeah, baby. Oh, that's not great. Mm -mm. When you grab a pair of scissors off the wall and step forward daintily, you reach out with one hand and hold the thing's chin and its cheek. And with the other, you slide the scissors beneath the stitches and snip once, twice, three times, quickly as you can. Instead of opening its mouth with a cry of thanks, instead, this creature bellows in pain. It rears back as blood starts spewing and spitting out of the cracks in its lips and dribbling down its face, mixing with its spittle. You drop the scissors in fear and step backwards, colliding with another one of the shapes that are beneath these broadcloths that again moves beneath you. This woman, now that her mouth is freed, opens it, a wide, gaping jaw. You can see that her teeth are badly stained, most of them missing, a gummy, lopsided smile. She grins at you and she says, Hold still while we fix it. From behind you, you can feel uh, limbs starting to circle around you from beneath the cloth, trying to hold you in place. Now that you've caressed a horror, um, you are going to pass the ring to another sister. Yeah, um, I'm giving this ring to the Animus because we might need to... Be strong. Yes, correct. (laughs) Animus, how are you feeling about this situation? I don't think that Bluebeard could have done this. Mm-hmm. I think that it's too great a horror. What would you like to do? Um, I'd like to try and well, free myself from whatever grasp is coming. Uh, I'm assuming that it's like these arms are now around us. They're starting to reach. I gave you a little bit of uh, space to decide if you want to relax into their caress or pull yourself free. Uh, the shears are on the ground. There are a pair of sewing scissors on the ground and a rack of wicked, sharp, gleaming instruments a little bit out of reach on the far wall. Uh, I'll make a motion for the largest, sharpest object I can find. You want to head towards the rack? Yes. Okay. As you move towards the rack, spending more time in this room, you can see further movement as more and more dress forms start to emerge from under these claws. There must be half a dozen in all. You swiftly and fearfully make your way over to the rack of sewing supplies, looking for, yes, here, a large pair of bronze shears. Thick, heavy, sturdy. You place your back against the rack and turn to see uh, two or three more of these doll-like, mannequin-like women with stiff joints, with scars delicately tracing out their imperfections, freeing themselves of the claws and standing to look down at you. Some of their gazes are 
pitiful, sympathetic, you imperfect, ugly creature with no meat, no breasts, nothing to offer Bluebeard but your bones. They want to help you. They want to fix you. Uh, I yell that uh, he didn't want any of you. Okay. Hmm. How are the other sisters feeling about this? Mother, we haven't heard from you yet. I don't know. I mean, this is the kind of exact situation, I think, where the mother would also lean on the animus uh, because she wants to uh, lash out with violence and protect her body, protect herself and fight off that insecurity. But it's not her strength. She feels weak in the face of being being torn down because it's not what she's used to. And so I think like in this exact instance, this is the kind of thing where she also would give up to the animus and and pray that it, it keeps her strong. That interests me because you are the one who named the bride as being rail thin and weak looking. Yeah. Well, the mother is acutely aware of that weakness because it's a weakness perceived by others. And I think... Um, the mother is not used to being imperfect. I mean, she recognizes that the bride is imperfect, but to hear that there is a reason for her to be unloved, it's particularly difficult for her because there, there's so much, you know, it's not the kind of body that bears children, that can care for other people, that can protect. And that's exactly the role that the mother tries to take. Um, and so when it comes to her body, not being able to fulfill that, she feels so purposeless and angry. Mm-hmm. A lot of challenging feelings already in our very first room. This bride is going to have a big day before her. I'd like to continue my outburst. <laughs> yes, Animus, what do you say to these women? I say, uh, he didn't want any of you. You're all grotesque, disfigured shadows of women locked away behind this door like a secret to be swept under the rug. Tell me why it is that you've done this to yourself and and perhaps I can come to understand something of the man we both have adoration for. They seem taken aback by your outburst and confused. The first one, the one who had her lips sewn shut, who now has a hanging jaw, pulls out the stool at the sewing table and awkwardly she pats it gesturing you over, meaning no harm. She sits you down and she runs lumpy, awkward hands along your shoulders and down your arms as she leans in around your shoulder next to your ear. She says, he loved that we fixed ourselves for him and we want him to love you too. At the table, she reaches out and picks up a pair of small scissors that are hidden underneath a scrap of fabric. She pulls them up and gently she drags the closed blade over your face, up your cheek and down around your jaw. Then she opens the scissors and she presses them into your hands. She says, you will be beautiful. Uh, I stab her in the face with the shears I have. The mother wants to fight against that. Can I do that? Um, well, the Animus has the ring right now. You can certainly, and I wish you would tell the Animus that you don't approve of their plan. Yeah. I, I at uh, least want to say that. Please, let her, let her have it. I understand that you're trying to be 
strong and I respect that strength, but sometimes that strength is stubborn and this might be our best chance. We came here to be better and maybe this will make us better. No, do it. <laughs> Wait, so you agree with me? No, I agree with the animus. I don't think we need to be better. I think that we in this body are perfectly good. We don't need to kneel to these, as the animus said, shadows of women. We're not kneeling to them. They're kneeling to us. They're going to make us better than any of them could be. They are eager to work on you. I'd rather us work on ourselves. Thank you very much. It's no, you're supposed to be the one that soothes me, but uh, that's only when I have rage. I think that this is uh, well-founded, um, a well-founded action, and I, I, I proceed. Animus, you'd like to stab this creature. I'm going to ask you to dirty yourself with violence by rolling with carnality. Okay, it's... Sorry, what's the rolls for this? It's... Uh, 2d6. Okay. Eight. Okay. So you're going to stab this creature in the face, and uh, you are going to either choose to disable them, silence them, or mutilate them. Uh, I will choose to mutilate them. How do you want to mutilate this figure? Uh, if the entry point's in the side of the face, you know, anything that is symmetrical will be kind of, you know, the flesh will be rendered from there, and anything that is kind of what they would perceive as perfect will now be not. So I think that even it doesn't even have to be very deep or anything, uh, really uh, any type of scarring that makes it uneven, I think, is enough. Mm-hmm. And on a mitigated hit, a seven to nine, you will also choose one consequence. Either your vulnerability will open you up to trauma or your carelessness will leave you in a bad spot. A uh, bad spot. Okay. She hands you the scissors and you turn and with fear and rage and perhaps a little disgust, swipe at her with the sharp blade. You can feel it gouge into the top of her ear and part of that organ come loose and dangle away from the rest of the head as this creature howls in agony. She shoves away from you and her shoving throws you onto the sewing table. You can feel threads tingle as they seem to move by themselves across your skin, slowly, lazily coiling around you. And you can hear but not see the cries of pain from this creature who wants you to be beautiful like her. About an inch and a half away from your right eye, you can see a drop of blood splatter down from that heavy needle of the sewing machine and dash against your cheek, staining your face. And you can hear the sounds of the creatures approaching. You try to move upwards, but you find the strings grow tighter and tighter around your limbs, these threads that have coiled themselves around you. To whom do you give the ring? Back to the witch. The mother will take this opportunity to comfort the animus, even though she tried to fight against her. Not necessarily to say that it was the right or the wrong decision, but to say that you were strong, and I acknowledge that, and I'm proud of you. Yeah, I appreciate that, and feel that bygones be bygones. A test of character and conflict for the bride, which... You are tied down to the sewing table. You can still hear this thing's cries. Out of the corner of your eye, you get a glimpse as it tries to 
with shaking hand, needle and thread, sew its ear back on to the side of its head. The rest of the creatures, its underlings, don't know what to do. They look at each other and then slowly start to crawl and shamble and stagger towards where you're tied to the table. What do you do? Am I holding the shears that the animus had? You are, yes. I am. And I'm being tied to the table. Invisible threads are holding you. Not invisible, just... Can I try and cut them? You can cut the threads, yes. I think that you cut the threads and you sit up, chopping through the last of them, the thick filament that's binding your waist, and you're standing in front of the sewing table. I think I try and leave and maybe propose a truth about the uh, sewing room. Propose a truth first. What do you think happened here? To whom and why? The witch thinks that Bluebeard or his staff, somebody convinced these women that they were not good enough and made them take such extreme measures to change their bodies and to please people. I don't think it was of their own accord. I think they were coerced. What say you, sisters, to this truth? Uh, the Animus disagrees. B- Bluebeard loves us, or has at least taken us in, and we look, we look and act nothing like this at all. Um, a far cry away from it, so it seems odd. Bluebeard has power and authority and, and realistically could have uh, a, a, a woman richer, perhaps more beautiful than us, but yet still chose us. It seems odd for him to then demand of previous wives to alter their appearance such. Well spoken. Uh, well, the Animus believes that uh, they never procured Bluebeard's love and were in a constant pursuit of it and took extreme measures to, 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 to get there. The mother agrees with the Animus that she thinks these women wanted to be something more. I still think it takes external pressures to drive someone to such extreme measures. And I still want to take a token of disloyalty, please. That is your choice. What token would you like to take? Oh, uh, I'll take the shears. The fabric shears you hold in your hand, stained with blood and gore, a symbol of the pressures that Bluebeard forced upon these women to make themselves better for him. Okay, we have one token of disloyalty. Either disloyalty will fill up first, faithfulness will fill up first, or all of you will be shattered and uh, taken from existence. And those will be our three end states for the game. And so now that you've proposed a truth and you have earned the resentment of your two sisters who vehemently disagree with your interpretation of events. Sorry. (laughs) You may leave. When you exit the door of the sewing room, you leave behind these huddled masses who are tending to their leader. After she sewed her own ear back on, perhaps in a gesture of comfort and consolation, they brought her over to the sewing machine and they began taking her apart, smoothing out her wrinkles, plumping her up, and sewing her shut, bit by bit. And that is the scene that you close the door on. 
When you exit, you find yourself not in the front room of Bluebeard's Manor, but in a tall, shadowy corridor with high lamps sending shimmers of golden light across the shadows. There's a small window at the end of the hall, and you can hear the storm clouds thundering in the distance as the weather gets closer. What key calls to you now? Still me. Um, yeah, you ring hog. Do- <laughs> it's not my fault. Jordan gave it to me. Which I now regret. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. No regret is an important element in this game. Um, I'm going to take a medium-sized ring that is maybe made out of bone or ivory. Mm-hmm. It is maybe a little crude and a little oddly shaped compared to the rest of the keys. Does it look old or new? I'm going to say new. It's not very nicked or anything. Smooth, undented planes of bone. You find a door that fits this key. It is tall, made of beautifully carved wood, and displays a hunting scene of hounds chasing after a fox under a crescent moon. You open the door, you enter, and the door shuts behind you. This room looks like a stable. Straw crunches below your feet. There are stalls running along the length of this room on your left and on your right. There is the rich, fertile smell of animal life, of dung, of sweat rippling in the air. There is a single gas lantern on the table in the corner next to the door, and no other light shadows extend from the far corner of this room. What do you do? There were animals in here? You can smell animals, but you can't see anything. It's quite dark in here. So then I will light a lamp or something. (laughs) There's one in the corner by the door. You'd like to head further into the stable? Sure. The bride steps forward, looking for the source of these rich smells. And as she steps through the stable, the sounds she hears. Three stables with their high closed doors and shadowy interiors have noises emerging from them. In one, you hear the gentle snorts and whinnies of what sounds like a horse. In another, you hear the raspy pants and snuffles of what sounds like a big fat dog. And in the third, you hear the crying of what sounds like a human child. The mother wants you to go to the child. (laughs) I was gonna play with the dog, but whatever. I'll check on this abandoned baby. What if it's Henley? Oh, okay. Anyway. (laughs) It's fine. Oh, it's wonderful. You head into the stall from whence you hear the sound of a child crying. Inside... You don't see a child, but the sound is getting louder. The stall is full of hay and straw that is piled up in the corners. The potent smell of manure and excrement assaults your nostrils and makes you gag and your eyes water. On the wall, it looks like there are pictures and words carved in crudely as though with a small penknife to the wood of the stable. Can I take a closer look? Why don't you investigate a mysterious object? Great. I will do that. Whose item is this? 
there is a signature carved in the corner of this strange artwork slash graffiti slash diary. Um, the name is Maria. Um, and what memories does this item hold? You lift your lantern back and appraise the scene entirely. It is like the image you saw on the door, the image of a hunt out on the grounds of the estate. You see tall, towering pine trees, and you see a group of hunters riding on horseback. In other parts of the image, you see what looked to be a family of foxes in a den underground, listening to sounds coming from the surface. And in another corner of the image, you see a woman standing naked in a field, a copse, a clearing of pine trees. She has long, wicked claws instead of fingers on her hands, and she is looking up in fear at the sound of the hunters. Okay. And I still don't see any evidence of the child that I'm hearing? No, but the weeping is growing louder. It seems to be coming from a pile of straw in the corner, piled up. I'll brush the straw aside. When you brush the straw aside, you encounter a creature that has the head of a fox and the body of a boy, about six or seven years old. The fox is looking at you with the intelligent but cruel and cold eyes of an animal, while from its mouth, human cries emerge. Its clothing is soiled, dirty with blood and with excrement. It looks like it's been abandoned and left here. It looks hungry and helpless as it cries and its sharp teeth gnash in its mouth. Is there anything I can feed it? What would you like to feed it? The animus uh, is disgusted by this thing and thinks it's an abomination. The witch is curious about it. It wants to know how it was formed. Yes, I agree about finding something to feed it. Is there anything around at all? Is there like something, some kind of feed for the dog or the horse? Like, are there carrots around? Do you want to enter another stall? No, but okay. (laughs) Which stall do you not like to, but feel compelled to enter, Bride? Wait, take the baby. Uh, okay. I'll take the baby with me to the horse. You hoist the child onto your hip still crying. It snuffles its way, its snout cold and wet tickles against your side as you carry it out of the stall. It smells disgusting and you can feel its dirty clothes rubbing up against your dress as you head into the stall from which you heard the sounds of a neighing horse. This time, when you enter the stall, your lantern does meet something. Nothing hard to find here. There is a beautiful chestnut horse with a mane that is silvery white and a matching tail and the head of a woman. Sort of the inverse of the other thing you see. There are, uh, There is a wooden box with a simple latch uh, built into the side of the stall. It's ajar and you can see that there are uh, old bundles of carrots, dusty and dirty in the bottom of this bin. So it's the head of a woman, so presumably she can speak. I don't think you should presume anything about whatever you find in Blackbeard's house. Bluebeard's house. Someone's house. A bearded house. Anyone's house. 
You should never presume anything about anything you find in someone's house. That's actually very good. <laughs> well, then I'll give her a quick hello. And then I will make my way to the food to bring to the starving child, seeing that the horse is well fed. As you start towards the bin where the horse's food is presumably kept, the horse is startled and lets out a huge whinny and attempts to clomp down on you with its hooves, trying to prevent you from accessing its chest. I think I might want to give up the ring to the mother. Hey, someone say baby? (laughs) Yeah, someone said baby. And I think I'm less well-equipped for maybe the situation than you might be. Mother, you are in control of the bride. Oh, God. Terrifying. With the baby still on my hip, I want to caress and soothe this horse. What are you doing? I guess I'll, I'll caress her hair and draw her face close the way that I would a friend or a daughter. And I'll say, it's okay. We're safe together. Mother, I ask you to roll with blood. My blood ain't good. Minus one. Yeah, it's minus one. It's a five. Mm, That's a miss. Mother, this startled, spooked, aggressive horse is attempting to trample you where you stand. And you decide to creep forward and give it a gentle touch and calm it down. You are not successful. The horse plants a hoof in the middle of your chest and kicks you with all of its might. You reel backwards into the door of the stable. You take one trauma as your head bashes against the splintering wood of the stable door. The fox-headed boy leaps from your grasp and sprints into a pile of straw, disappearing from sight. Uh, Is it still like rustling in the pile of straw? Like, can I sense out that it's still... You could try to locate it, but you are... The stall is not much bigger than the horse. The horse is uh, in a frenzy, and it wants to continue trampling you. And you're only, you know, a matter of a foot or two in front of it. It's it's, uh, so unwise for me to stay in here, but I can't imagine leaving this scared child. Uh, What do you do? Can I take stock? The animus tells you to leave the child. (laughs) Uh, you can take stock of a tense situation. You'll get one question. What does this place demand from the bride? I can ask you hard questions too, Jesse. You sure can. I wish you would. Hey. As you step backward and press yourself into the corner of the stable and try to get a better look at this woman-headed horse, you see something that you didn't see before as you sweep your lantern low across the ground. This horse is heavily pregnant and you can see its nethers start to swell and dilate as it whinnies in pain. I say, can you understand me? The horse gives no reply. I want to try again. I can help you. I know the pain you're in. I want to help you have your child. <laughs> Jerry, how are you feeling? Um, I'm okay, just... Shivering in fear. But uh, I'm not care- holding the ring, so I, that doesn't You don't have the thing. ring. I just want to acknowledge it. (laughs) Uh, The horse can't seem to understand you from speech alone, Bride. Its legs are shaking with tension and pain. Oh, this is so risky, but I'm going to try again. Just talk to it? Uh, Talk to it and... Yeah, let's try talking to it again. I'll slowly move forward. I want to show that I am no threat. 
I open myself up, I put my hands up to show that I'm vulnerable. I'm gonna help you. And I gesture from my heart to where their heart would be. And I move towards close to the back of the horse. Do you touch the horse? Yes. I think you should roll to caress a horror once more. Oh my God, this minus one is fucking me. It's a six. The mother's attempts to be gentle with this horse are not doing well. The horse spasms and butts against you. That's just another complete miss. Oh my God. Um, You managed to get yourself out of the way. Uh, You're moving around to the back of it where it has a, obviously the horse can't see you very well as you move around to the back of it. What can see you is the stressed and terrified fox headed boy that is shivering in the corner of the straw. As you step backward away from the horse's limbs, you feel sharp teeth sink into your calf and blood spurt down your leg. When you look down, he has a a trap-like vice of a jaw closed around you. You're gonna take another trauma. Okay, and I give up the ring now, right? Yes. Uh, hmm. I've made my uh, disgust known, so. Uh, you know, I'm not going to RP this wrong, so you should probably not pass it to me. You're right. <laughs> but I don't like the witch. Like, I don't... Here's the thing about my relationship with the Animus, is that we disagree often, but I treat our opinions as equal. I, I, I recognize that I can be wrong, um, often even, but I don't... I think that I respect the animus and I respect them to make a, the right decision. I, 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 but you know that I have a complete contradiction to you here, so. <sighs> oh my God, this is so hard. I don't know who need, who is better here. I, I will give it, uh, no, I'm giving it to the witch. It's, it's a uh, rare for me, I think, but I will. The animus will remember it still though. Cool. So I just I I'm being bit by a fox baby, and there's a rearing horse. You feel searing pain, dripping from your leg. From between the horse's legs, you can hear the sounds of wetness and something emerging slowly. I may not want birth, childbirth. We don't want childbirth. Yeah, that's Sorry. okay. That's okay. I think that there will be something else going on with this horse instead. Do we have any ideas? Broken leg? Because usually you're supposed to like kill a horse with a broken leg, right? How do we feel about a horse with a broken leg? I don't know if this is like, I, I don't know if I want to rewind, but then that change that in, informs what I would have done. Mm-hmm. We can, if we want to uh, rewind back to, I guess, just encountering this horsewoman. I don't mind Eli being in the childbirth situation. <laughs> <laughs> So do you want Well, to- you could always give up the ring. I guess that's true. If I just do the shiver and fear thing that I'm giving up the ring, that might be more what's happening then. As long as you're comfortable with the scene proceeding with like a childbirth theme. Yeah, I just don't want to do it. Then sure, if that's what will make you comfortable, you're happy to give away the ring. Certainly, I think you are shivering from fear. All right, I'll give it to the animus. Sorry, <sighs> you're in it now. ha. <laughs> When you shiver from fear and you pass the ring, you must choose one result. Either the horror will infect the bride with its perversion, it will have the bride in its clutches, or you will take a trauma. Um, I think I'll just take a trauma. Animus, your sisters are having a hard time in this stall. 
They need you to help them. I reach down and with my thumb and uh, index finger, I plug the two nostrils of the fox boy. Okay. The fox boy struggles a little bit at first, and then it realizes it can't breathe. And as you hoped, it loosens its jaw, its clamp around your neck, and uh, it chitters backwards and try to scurry once more into the hay. Uh, I allow it to do its scurrying. Yeah. Don't want a lot of business with that. You hear sound coming from beneath the horse. More human cries. What do I see? With your lantern on your knees, you cast your gaze up, and you see a creature, a human, not quite, with the head of a rabbit, born from the hindquarters of this horse. Naked, glistening, shivering. Hmm. It seems to be stuck. In, in the horse? In the horse. Help it! I'll approach. And? I will... Uh, how f- it, it's like, just, it's like just the head? It's just like crowned, or...? The head is mostly out. It seems the shoulders are having trouble breaching. Uh, I'll try and hook under the shoulders and, and, and pull. I remember reading that the bride grew up uh, with plenty of animals and a rich garden around in her simple home with her family. And I don't think it's unreasonable that this might not be the first time. Well, the first time you've done precisely this, but not the first time you've assisted in the birthing of an animal. After a couple of minutes of laborious work, after running your hand along this horse's flank and soothing it as best as you can, you hold in your arms uh, the size of maybe a three or four year old human child, naked, with a rabbit's head. The rabbit's eyes blink at you, and its ears twitch, and its whiskers brush against your collar. The horse seems to be calm now. It kicks at the straw, and it whinnies. What do you do? Offer the child. I, uh, I take the kid around in front of the its mother, and just place it at its feet. The rabbit boy stands up, hugs its mother's leg, and starts nuzzling its head against her. The mother and the child seem calm. She steps back to the rear of the stall, allowing you access to the box you wish to reach. Okay, I'll go to the box. The box is shut with a rusty padlock that simply falls apart as soon as you place your fingers on it. And when you open the box, you find, yes, ribbons, awards, medals of a champion racehorse laid out proudly underneath the mildewy straw at the bottom of this box. And next to it, a set of clothes. A beautiful summer dress made of the finest linen embroidered along the sleeves and collar with delicate, intricate, flowery patterns. Shoes, a hat, all bundled up nicely beneath the straw. And of course, a bundle of carrots. Uh... I want to consult the sisters on what they make of this. Sisters, what make ye of this? <laughs> the mother feels so heartbroken that this horse had a life of her own and identity and she was strong and accomplished. And now they collect dust and she's just a mom and not both. She's a mother and she's in pain and her accomplishments collect dust was the 
woman, the horse, were they always separate? Was she the jockey for the horse and they somehow became combined? Well, I think that that's up to us to do our best to, to arrive at. So um... You don't need to um, propose a truth at this stage. You can keep exploring the stable. Um, but if you also feel like it's time to go, then that's fine too. I would like to see if I can find something more, yes. What is the c- current layout? Is there anything you're going to take or use from the box or examine further? Yeah, what memories does this item hold and why did Bluebeard keep this item? Okay. You pick up one of the larger, more ornate medallions. It is hanging from a lush purple velvet sash that the wearer could adorn themselves with. On the front, it is carved with um, actually an image of a figure that has a woman's body naked in a pose of athletic prowess and the head of a horse, the inverse of what you just saw. And on the back, uh, you see engraved by hand, first place, and then at the bottom, a small heart. This seems to carry memories of superiority, joy, excellence, performance. Your other question was, why did Bluebeard keep this item? There was a pile of clothing. There was women's clothing, outdoor summery clothes of linen, finely tailored. And next to those, as you dig, you also find a set of riding gear, a firm helmet, short black leather riding gloves, a crop, jodhpurs and boots, neatly arranged next to the lady's clothes in the straw. So the reason to why is that it was a, like it was someone that he just loved. It was one of his wives. It seems Bluebeard has kept supplies for whatever this creature might need. Huh. Still a lot of questions. There's more to explore. That's what I would like to do. Sure. Uh, would you like to go elsewhere in the stable? Yes, please. What are my options with that? There were a couple of more stalls from which you didn't hear anything, as well as the stall from which you heard what sounded like a dog. Okay. Well, check out the pup. When you stand up, you turn and you see the horse has changed. Instead, she's just a woman from head to foot, nestled comfortably in a pile of straw, wrapped in a simple rag and nursing her newborn baby with the rabbit head upon her breast. She looks up at you with soft, dreamy eyes, smiles wordlessly, and you exit the stall. Across the central alley of the stable, past a puddle of dank, dirty water, you hear the sounds of a dog snuffling in the night. And as you open the stall door, step inside and cast your light about, you see not just one dog, but two. Luckily, they are both the correct configuration of head, body, and limb. Surprising relief you hadn't expected to be looking so desperately forward to. Two dogs are curled up in the straw, one of them sniffling and snoring loudly. The other one is standing and is staring down at you, bride, as you enter. It has bloody fletched drool dripping from beneath its sharp teeth and it looks up with you with malice you can see that around its collar it has a small wooden barrel attached to the leather with a little cork stopper on one end it growls wickedly 
I avert my gaze and and just look to the floor and hold my hand out softly. I, I move it slowly uh, with not my fingers fully out, but in a in a half clenched fist and uh, just control my breathing and 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 wait. As the dog steps forward, it spits out something that was caught in the back of its mouth. You look down and see a slender finger dripping with blood, clenched off at the first knuckle, lying in the straw. As you look down and this dog stares up at you, suddenly three, four, five large, foul-smelling mice scurry in from the gaps in the boards of this stall and gnaw at the finger, carrying it off quickly. The dog inches forward, sniffs at your fingers. Will you leave them there? Uh, yeah, they're not fully outstretched. They're they're to exactly guard against something of that sort. Though uh, the wife holds steadfast and and remains open to the to the dog. Which mother? How do you feel about this gesture? The mother, well confused and unsure if it's the right answer, encourages her. The dog bites your hand. Scrabbling to get a grip on one of your fingers, its fangs scratching and breaking the surface of your skin. You take one trauma, and as you rear back, you find this dog lunging forward, attempting to taste more of your flesh. The lantern, is it made of glass? Yes. Uh, I hold it horizontally in front of the uh, gaping jaw as, as, as the dog lunges in an attempt to try and put it into its mouth. Animus, I think once more you're choosing to dirty yourself with violence. Oh, we're dirty. Ooh, 13. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> That's excellent. Are you going to disable, silence, or mutilate this creature? Disable. And you will suffer no consequence for your excellent rule, Animus. You place the gas lamp sideways and hold it out, bringing it forth as the dog emerges. As you anticipate, it clamps down on the glass and the twisted brass of the wiring of the lamp, which shatters in its mouth. It instantly starts howling in pain as the glass shards dig into the roof of its mouth and the gums between its teeth. Suddenly, the stall is plunged into darkness as you lose your only source of light. I would like to try, as the light is fading or as this is happening, to try and swipe this this barrel around its neck. I think that's fair. I think uh, with that excellent roll, Tell me, tell me about it. I would like to to reach out for it, and if I manage to, in the kind of fading light, actually grasp it and and take it, I'd like to retreat from the room, so I can examine it in light somewhere. Mm-hmm. You stagger back out of the stall, clutching the small barrel that you've unhooked from uh, a latch on the collar of this dog that is now howling and crying in the empty blackened stall in which you leave it. It's very dark in the stable. You could swear that from some unknown window or skylight or sky itself, you could see faint streaks of moonlight illuminating the floor, but maybe just enough to read by. You head back to the front of the stable where you saw the small table by the door, and you uncork the barrel. You might expect a trinket such as this to hold liquor for an explorer traveling with a dog, Instead, you find a long scroll of paper 
rolled up and tucked inside this barrel. I read it. Shall you investigate a mysterious object once more, Animus? I think I shall. Actually, you did it yourself with violence. Should you give up the ring? Right. Um... I made the mistake of passing it to the witch last time. <laughs> Brutal. Uh, wait, did you just hand it over to me? I'll read the scroll then. Sure. Uh, you can ask two questions to investigate a mysterious object. What memories does this item hold is kind of our go-to. I'll start there. Here you see more of what looks to be the same kind of artwork that was carved in decoration in the wall of the stall where the fox boy was. This is done in delicate charcoals. It's a lot cleaner, more figurative. And in this long scroll that is maybe perhaps two feet in length, there are many drawings of different scenes that together form a sort of tapestry. Um, you see, again, the similar memory of a hunting party, of foxes hiding in their warrens, and of a woman hiding in some darkened corner of the woods. Then you see a woman who is drawn in one pose and then drawn over again in a red charcoal with the image of a horse and figures of her galloping, climbing, dancing are interlaid horse and woman back and forth again and again. And then there are sequences of a horse racing on a beautiful isolated track somewhere in the forest, surging forward defeating other horses, gaining accolades, flowers, and ribbons. And there is another drawing, a last drawing, at the end of this scroll that was not drawn by the same person. It's in a thicker, heavier, cruder hand, and it is a drawing of a woman sleeping in a pile of straw. My second question is, what about this item is odd or uncanny? He flipped the scroll over to its back, and you can see that there's a letter or a note, I suppose. It's not addressed to anyone and it's unsigned. The letter is a description of how powerful and fast and majestic the horse is when she races. The beauty and courage and awe she inspires in all who watch her. It's an ode to the horse depicted on the front. And every time the word race is written, it is written in that same reddish charcoal, which on closer inspection starts to seem to you more like dried blood. Um, I would like to propose a truth about this room. Please. This stable is um, a space for Bluebeard to own things. It's a space for Bluebeard to exert control over things that once were independent and had many identities, be that racehorse be that a free-spirited animal who only answer to their own instincts, or a mother. Um, and Bluebeard, I think, keeps these items, these animals, uh, because he likes to exert that control and that ownership over these things. What say you to this proposal? The question I pose is, but aren't the accolades this wife, this, this woman's, aren't they her own? They were, yeah. And he hunted them or domesticated them and broke the horse. This horse that was once a, a racehorse with their own identity and, and accomplishments and made it his. Hmm. I don't think that we ourselves are, at least in that regard, in any position to judge. Being, I don't. Being that we've presumably done the same, yes? 
yes, and that's why I would like to take a token of disloyalty because I feel that Bluebeard is trying to do that with us. He tries to mold us. We were once a sister, a daughter, a person. We once tended our own garden with our hands that are callous and you know, speak to our own accomplishments and the own, all things that we have done. And now we've come here and become soft. And one day we will be a mother. And that's it. But that's our choice. And he's given us complete freedom inside of this place. Is it our choice? We didn't choose to be wed. Our family wed us so that they could have a better life and a better station. And he's gentle with us, but it wasn't our choice. We don't have freedom here. We may have happiness, but we don't have freedom here. I think this horse has, absolved, has, has resolved that question that I've had since we came here. Are we prisoners in this gilded cage or not? Question, though, for the actual play of the game, maybe I'm wrong. I thought that it was that we made the choice to come here to be wed. Yes, there's external pressures of family and whatnot, but it wasn't like we're like arranged marriage, right? Well, sorry, go ahead. Whether or not there were... Um expectations or pressures on the bride is up for us to determine. I don't think that the idea is that this is a strict 100% arranged marriage. I think in my mind, the point is that like, we, that, that it's arranged in the sense that we are expected in this time period as women to be wed. And it's not a wedding of love and equality. We're not equals with Bluebeard. We, whether we chose it or not, gave ourselves to him. We are his object now. And as a woman in this time, we don't have a choice but to be somebody's object. We just get to choose whose. Bluebeard scared the young woman, but she couldn't let her family languish in poverty. And besides, maybe his beard wasn't quite that blue. <laughs> she accepted his proposal. Which I'd also like you to weigh in. I'd like the witch to weigh in. I will say also, not to sway you one way or the other, but for instance, there was also, um, you all answered a question of what gesture Bluebeard performed that did endear himself to you. I think that it would be, I think that it is worth thinking about um, if there's anything Bluebeard has offered that does make you happy, as the Animus says. But I do want to hear what the witch has to say. I agree that we should be taking a token of disloyalty. Is this not more evidence to what I saw in the other room that there are pressures on these women to be molded into something they are not. Is this not another example of that? I think that the mother does skew towards loyalty towards Bluebeard. Um, and so it's another unique position in which I would say that I would like to take a token of disloyalty because I think, you know, seeing, <laughs> seeing animals and children in this pain is Another kind of soft spot for the mother, it hurts to see, and I would hate to see any potential child that I might bear for him be in that same kind of pain. The, the pain that I'm feeling right now, and I can ignore for myself, but I couldn't ignore for somebody that I care about. So I will take a token of disloyalty, and it will be the scroll. We have taken our second token of disloyalty, the scroll. The bride crosses the doorway of the stable and the door swings shut behind her as she ventures further into Bluebeard's home. 
Thanks for listening to the first part of our Bluebeard's Bride game. We're about halfway through a batch of one-shots before we start our Monster Hearts campaign in February. The second half of Bluebeard's Bride will be out on January 5th. If you liked this episode, it would be very cool of you to let a friend know or post about us on social media or whatever. We're at the Realmscast everywhere if you want to tag us. Okay, bye. Welcome to Powered by the Players, the national play podcast featuring one-shots and mini-campaigns of all your favorite Powered by Apocalypse games. Each campaign will be a different PBTA game with a rotating cast of diverse players. I'm your host, Diana Lorraine. I am your game master, Morgan Nunes I am your producer, Kristen Devine. Let's, Let's power up! up.